what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Ironswick Dog Quip, who's our good friend, Jason Furman. Good friend? Good friend. Yeah. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, through Ironswick Dog Quip, is the importer and distributor of many products, including HF Mills, Herm Springer, and he has his own line of tugs and toys and sleeves and equipment called Dogpool. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff. Yeah, pretty much anything. If you want any dog-related training gear, talk to Jason at Ironswick Dog Quip. The best way to do that is to look him up on Facebook. He can pretty much get you any dog gear you need at probably the best price that can be gotten. He's a grumpy old bastard, but he's a good bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy, y'all. What are you, cowboy? <laughs> I'm not sure how they talk in Massachusetts. Well, I'm sure they don't talk like that. Well, anyway, I'm doing a workshop next year in Massachusetts in April. Oh, sweaty. What's yeah. that on? It's going to be Nipopo stuff. Excellent. Yep. So I'm pretty excited about that. 11, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's going to be four days long, 11 to 14 April. Just by the way, 11th of April is my birthday, so I expect presents on day one. You'll be able to justify having international in your business name now. <laughs> I've already got that. Have you? No. <laughs> I don't have that in the business name. If you would like to come to that, it's going to be four days about Nipopo. Going to get right into the theory of it. We're going to work some dogs. It should be a good time. Uh, if you want to come along, please talk to Jen Banks. And the best way to get in contact with her is either on Facebook, if you have her, or send her an email to Jen, J-E-N, at Banks Canine Solutions. And it's K as in letter K, number nine. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Awesome. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And it's actually the week of our first birthday. We've been it running is. the show. We're having for, a birthday week. We'll, we'll, or should we'll, we have a birthday month? Well, there's some confusion about whether it's our birthday when we first recorded or when we first released. But anyway, we're one year old roughly. Yep. And we thought for our first guest on our first year yep. was... Birdie O'Shitty. Hello, everybody. Welcome, Birdie. Thank you. And happy first birthday. Thank Thanks. you. What an amazing journey for you guys. Yeah, and you've been part of it. Like, this is the third time now? I fourth. Think fourth. Fourth. Yeah. Fourth time? Yeah, I think it's fourth. the fourth time. Yeah. Fourth time. Wow. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, it's great. I'm moving in, guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're part of the finish. We've got a little bird nest out the back. <laughs> oh, but thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy talking with you guys and, you know, picking each other's brains. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for putting up with us being late as me and Glenn were just having a, a big debate on dominance. Yeah. Debate which was fascinating. A... It was really quite meaty. Yeah. I was really enjoying it. Just before we go on to Birdie's topic, we're going to put something out to the community. The debate happened around a, a quote by Roger Brantes. And so we'll put that up in line. Um, we'll ask a few people to comment on it because Pat and I have a little bit of opposition over it, which is good. It was a healthy debate, as most things are. And we're always of the opinion, which it should be anyway, that if there's evidence to suggest that what you're thinking is not right, then you should be adaptable to changing your mind on it, Yeah, which is what we all agree on is the best way to be. And 
I have uh, strong opinions on people who won't do that yeah. uh, when they have that cognitive dissonance around things where they just say, well, I've got to defend the honour of something that I believe in, whether it's right or wrong, they don't know what it is. But I think what we're really looking for is to get to the nitty gritty of Yeah, and it's it, just an issue of definitions. That's yeah, all yeah, it is. absolutely. It, I'm happy to change the definition in my mind. I just, I certainly was thinking about it in a different way. Anyway, that'll come up. People will see it. So, Bertie, what's been going on? Oh, my God, where do I start? At the beginning. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, I'm at the moment really enjoying work and life. And at the moment, there's really exciting times coming up because I'm designing the next workshops for next year. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit on cloud nine today because I had a really good meeting yesterday with someone. And I would like to share it with you because there are some parallels with the dog industry that I thought might be of interest, if that's cool. cool. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to hear it. So... Some of you know I'm a clinical psychologist. I have my own private practice. And what's really interesting is is that the psychologist community very often struggles to collaborate or cooperate with psychiatrists very often. Can I ask you to explain what the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is? Of course. It's a very common question. It's actually one that probably I get asked the most. Mm. So... A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. They have at least 11 years of studying and they really focus on the biology and of the mind as well. And they do a really good job in making sure that people with severe mental health issues are being looked after. And they can subscribe medication. Exactly. So Prescribe. Prescribe. Yes. Prescribe. That's (laughs) the right definition. (laughs) So they prescribe medication and they sometimes offer therapy as well, like talk therapy. But sometimes they don't. Like it's a choice that they have sometimes. But they're really focusing on the biology of the human very often. Mm. As psychologists, we are really specializing on human behavior. We are experts in human behavior. Like we we think how can we help them have the best quality of their life with cognitive tools. Like we think, you know, we focus on thinking, feeling, on your behavior and your values, what gives your life meaning and purpose. Um, what are you struggling with? And also, what mental health problems do you have? Or how could we help you gain more mental health assets? Like, how can we help you improve? And there is a difference between a normal psychologist and a clinical psychologist. So a normal psychologist studies at least four to five years, to my knowledge, plus postgrad. Whereas a clean psych, for instance, I studied in Austria. I did a seven-year degree plus two years postgrad plus continuous training. So, God damn it, that's a lot of school. Mm. It's a lot of school because a clean psych um, has the availability or the, the, t- the training to not just deal with depression, anxiety. That is an everyday problem for some people. We can also do really the it, quite difficult things like you know PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder or personality disorders. So we have the ability to treat everyone, whereas psychologists are encouraged to stay within whatever they've trained for. They can also treat PTSD if they do further training. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly enough, we're quite governed. Like we have a lot of ethics to apply or to look up to. Like we have the Australian Psychological Society and the Allied Health Practitioner Regulation agency. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of standards around this and they really dictate how we like to market, who we like to see. And then you can also have, for example, counsellors. That's a bit less regulated than psychologists and psychiatrists and clinical psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone can do amazing work as long as everyone just is aware of where their limits are, because we are all really guided by, you need to be an expert what you do. Mm-hmm. 
And if you have done enough training, enough, especially supervision, then you can do that. And I think that's about it, really. Can I throw a spanner in the works here and ask you what a psychoanalyst? A psychoanalyst is a very dedicated and super patient person that I have a lot of respect for because I couldn't be one that specializes in a school of thought, in a school of therapy. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's a psychotherapist. They really, um, so, so for example, I'm training to be a schema therapist. Mm-hmm. You pick one type of therapy yep. and you become a master at it. And for example, for psychoanalysis, where Freud was the father of it all in Vienna, he lived in my neighborhood. Also, he died, but his house was in my neighborhood. Means, for instance, that you have to, I don't know, that's a the psychoanalysts have to go through years and hundreds of hours of self-experience. So to become a clinical psychologist in Austria, you usually do at least seven years training and then you have a couple, at least 100 hours of self-therapy in Austria and ongoing therapy. Self-therapy? Yeah, I've been to more therapy than any of my clients. <laughs> because for us, it's like you need to know what it feels. You need to know how what your problems are because if you look at the curriculum of becoming a clinical psychologist. The techniques are the fun part. They're quite easy to understand. Mm. But the heartbeat in therapy is knowing when you become triggered as a person because mm. there's a lot of You have to be an empty vessel, right? Yes, and that you don't put your needs on on top of your client's yep. needs, mm-hmm. essentially. So because of that, we are not allowed to treat family and friends. Mm. And that's why I don't offer Skype consultations anymore because I'm like everyone that would want to do therapy with me. I've had a beer with you. <laughs> like mm. it, it doesn't make sense. We have to really, we have to honor that boundary because I need to be neutral in your life because you're probably struggling with relationships. So my job is that our relationship is the tool. So I need to be able to direct you, to tell you, to empathically confront you, to support you. It removes judgment, right? Yeah. Mm. Because it's also when they have the ability to come in a room and they go like, I will never see you again. There's a lot less pressure. Mm. So that's why sometimes people are confused because I got a lot of requests. Hey, can you help me out? And I'm like, I wish, but I know you too well, so I can't. Have you ever seen the TV show Arrested Development? No. Well, my joke will be lost. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry. There's a character in that who calls himself an analyst and a therapist. And on his card, it says... Anal rapist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that's a very common joke. <laughs> yeah, but so to come back, did that answer your question, by the way? Yeah, it did. Yeah. yeah. Does a psychoanalyst have to be a GP? No. In, uh, well, I don't know Australia. In Austria, not. Yep. In Austria, you can be just a psychoanalyst. What about a psychiatrist? A psychiatrist, they have medical training. They are a doctor. Yep. So a GP first or do they go straight into being a psychiatrist? It's just... I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I don't think they they could choose different things as well. Mm. But um, but they are a medical doctor. Yeah, they're, medi- yeah, they're and they're, they're really doctor. medically yeah. trained. Yeah. Um, because if you have a heart attack in their office, you're going to be okay. Yes, because they, <laughs> well, they, they very can often run psychiatrists. And, you know, yeah, like, and yeah. you, for example, if you're on um, antidepressants, you need to get blood monitored or all sorts of things. So they have a really beautiful, amazing medical background. Mm. Okay, but. What, the reason why what I wanted to share with you is psychologists, we are like the dog trainers and psychiatrists, they quite often prefer prescription, not like always. Like the veterinary behaviorist. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. We are clashing a lot of the time. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way, but there's a big trend that we very often clash. And there's 
it's so sad because we're working towards the same goal, but we get lost. Do you think it's an ego-related clash? It's so much. It's ego, it's finances, it's sponsoring. Like yeah. it's, it's so colluded. Mm. And it's really sad because in the end you can lose the goal of helping the person. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that this is for everyone, but when I open in my practice in Hornsby now from here, I really noticed that it's really segregated. And I, I used to work in teams where psychiatrists and I would sit on the same table. And because we're so close, I can see your face and we can talk about it. We, we are remembering that we have the same mission. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the ego would come down and we would really focus on, hey, what can we do together to help that person? Because mm-hmm. I'm not against medication. I, if medication is used to help people change their behavior, I'm all for it. It has a place in the world, but mm. it needs to be done cautiously and with intent and thought. Yeah. Sometimes the whole sensation of degrees create elitism in people as well, and that's where the ego gets in it. Like your degree is different from mine and my study was different from yours. However, people have spoken to me before about being an NDTF trainer as opposed to being a dog trainer, and I said, well, you can be a PhD and still be, I wouldn't trust you for your consult. It doesn't mean that you're any better equipped. It's personal thing, you know. Like I always believe that the craft is in the actual person. The exactly. delivery is in the passion of the person who is doing it. You know, I do believe that the education is necessary. I absolutely support that. I think some institutions do it much better than others. However, you still have to be passionate and committed enough to do that research and want to carry through with it and update your skills and knowledge on a regular basis. And that's always the person that I'm confident in. I'm confident in a person who um, not only wants to do it, but has a proficiency around it and has developed a keen proficiency around it. But I'm also, you know, like I understand that there are certain laws and stipulations that say, well, you can't give prescription medicine until you're qualified as a doctor. I'd I'd have to have confidence in that as well, I've got to say. Yeah, you do. And for example, with PTSD, right? Like I was just, so I do about 30 to 60 hours a year just training for psychology on top of my dog training. So I'm- I was going to ask you about that, like your continuing yeah, training and I, education. I, I clock between 30 and 60 hours continuous mm. professional development. And it's so interesting. The more you know, the less you know. Like yeah. I've been mm. the most confident in my first year of uni and now I'm like, whoa. But you've seen the world, right? Like you've had the curtain pulled away and you, you can see like the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, and you can see how even when you have really good intent, if you don't understand the big picture, you can actually really do more harm. Yeah. And it's like, so, so for example, I train in a lot of methods and in the end, my job is now to how which method helps you and what is the driver behind it because every behavior has a payoff. But the interesting thing is, and I always remind people, is the reason why we train so hard is PTSD, for instance, has a lot of symptoms and it's really important that people to be diagnosed with PTSD, they have to you know be diagnosed appropriately. It's a whole assessment. Mm-hmm. But just one symptom has about 500 pages of instruction manual for the, for the therapist. Wow. And if you don't know that, if you don't understand how they all relate, you can really hurt someone mm-hmm. because it, we always have to, clinical psychologists, our main work is not just helping them, but it's also to build a catchment for them if things go pear-shaped. Mm. We always have to think about the worst case scenario and go like, how can I catch you when it goes wrong? Yeah, Because they're quite unpredictable sometimes. So that's where we're coming from, but sorry, back to my story, it's a bit of a tangent. So we have the psychiatrists and the psychologists or counsellors, we always have this divide. 
And I remembered how good it felt to sit at the table with these people and really help them together. And there is also, it's so difficult because in private practice, you work by yourself. Mm. So what I've done is over the last two years, I've thought, how can I approach this topic? How can I help my community that we come together? Because we need each other, essentially. And what I've done is I identified that the GPs are the people that have the most influence because they refer, they're like the vets, right? Yep. So I've put a lot of effort into getting really close to my GPs that refer. Like I send them cards, I go out with them for dinner, I have drinks with them. And the main thing that I did is like I asked them, I'm like, how can I help you make your life easier? What are you struggling with? So I, I skilled them up in certain areas. I've given them little manuals or little handouts for their clients. And beautiful relationships have come out of that. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, the reason why I'm on cloud nine today is because my GP made sure that I was invited to a new mental hospital that opened a private hospital and she just took me along and they ignored my reservation. I wasn't invited. They didn't reply to my emails and she advocated for me in front of everyone that I had a space in this room. And so I was the only clinical psychologist amongst all the GPs and all the psychiatrists where she said, you need to listen. And I was so grateful because I'm like, now we have this connection. We can talk. And after the Mm. meeting, everyone was realizing how segregated we are Mm -hmm. and the reason why I bring this up is I think that's really important for us in the dog industry because I think if every dog trainer would just get a beautiful relationship happening with two or three vets in their area and get really strong and help them become make their life easier Mm -hmm. they would have them on their mind they would step in and they would then change their behavior as well maybe advocate for them and I think that is something that I wanted to share yeah that book that you bought for me the Lost Connections. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed reading that book so much so that I'm actually rereading it again. I'm, I'm doing it too. I'm it it is such then. a good book, and everything that you've been talking about now, like the need to fulfil yourself with being involved in community, it's something that I've been through it in stages of my life, Bertie, where I've I've wanted to reject people before, like I've wanted to push people away, and especially when I was feeling unwell, like when I had my bouts of depression, I wanted people away from me. And like he says in the book, which he puts it diligently, is that when you do get into that stage of mind, like it's all about you and how you feel and the world and you sort of wrap yourself in like a plastic bubble. You just, you're all consuming about everything that goes on. But the best I've felt is always when I'm I'm with community, around people I enjoy like being. And I find that I flourish best in population of other people. I feel better. I feel better about myself. I enjoy listening to people's stories more now. Like I've I've learned that I actually like listening about other people and what they're doing and learning things about them. And this has been one of the things I've really enjoyed about this whole podcast experience is that I'm learning stuff about other people. Like I read your Pause and Life story about Trish Harris the other day. I've known Trish for years and I never knew any of that stuff. And I was quite ashamed of myself, to be honest. Like I'm loving your... I don't mean this in an offensive way for the people who've listened to this and think that's what I'm thinking, but you, there's people who have in some stages have kind of been underdogs in certain areas and people haven't paid attention to it and you've sort of brought to life significant things about them that are important that I'd rather know now than at their eulogies. You know, and I think that's the worst thing that I've had happen is when I've, I've learned significant things about people from when they died. And I think that's terrible. Why didn't I know that about you when you were alive? 
Pat and I tell each other stories about things and he amazes me with these funny stories about things he does in the desert. Like the episode last week when he talked I about... I laughed so hard. Oh, oh my God. But see there, a- how dare you all laugh <laughs> at me falling into a, a sewer. river of shit. Because I had a lady poop on my... Uh, pee, not poop, pee on my head. So oh, I, that's no, right. Yeah, so I am allowed to laugh at your story. You know my story, how I got peed on my head. We, so. did, we spoke about that here. Yeah. You two are like... Brother and sister in like in it like in, like, <laughs> in like people's and, bodily fluids like poo and wee in a sewage yeah yeah delicious I've had none of it on me yet I've got so many messages I about that have, episode I've had dog shit and piss all over me working in kennels I mean God it's terrible but yeah yeah I didn't fall into a river of people's poo it wasn't a river it was just a pit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad have, we clarified that. A river that might have been better. A river might have been yeah, better. Yeah, might actually had fresh flowing water in it. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Bertie. I've completely hijacked your, your no, point. No, I love it. And and look, I think the reason why I had to pause in life stories is um and please hey, everyone, they're awesome. They're so good. Yeah, the, but they are on free will. Like I I invite people. So mm. if you want to contribute, feel free to contribute. Like that's how it works. But the idea is that. I realized I do want to contribute to com- to my community and that's what I can do, right? Because what people forget is, and I think that's what we should actually look at, is like what is mental health really? Mm-hmm. You know, because people very often have this misconception that when they hear the word mental health, mm. they think of depression and anxiety, which is pathological. This is the far end because mental health is on a, on a sliding scale. And if you look at the World Health Organization's definition of hey, what is mental health? It's really interesting. And I wonder what you guys think about it. So the World Health Organization states that mental health is a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make contribution to her or his community. What do you think about this definition? Well, I think that's mental healthy probably not mental health because I think mental health is, I like the terminology, but it's talking about the positive frame of mind, not encompassing everything. It's my perception that when we talk about mental health, it encompasses the state of mind you're in at the time. So yeah, it's a state of mind, but essentially what I thought is interesting that our society never looks at the community aspect. We maybe look at how coping, how do you cope under stress? How Mm. well do you perform? But we never talk about, hey, how well connected are you? Mm. Are you isolated? Do you feel lonely? How are you doing? Which is why I love that book, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. It's amazing, that book. And I really appreciate that you bought that for me. Second time. Second time. (laughs) But it is. It's. It's. People have often asked about good reading material, and I think that would be at the forefront of, if you're going to buy a book, if if you've got any feelings about or any negative feelings at the moment, at least consider that book as a good read. Yeah. Have you read it? Uh, no. I listened to a few different podcasts with Johan. Yeah. It's very interesting, but I have not yet read the book. Yeah, it's the on book's my list. good. I gave it to all my GPs and they love it. That's how we connected again. So I mm. gave them because I, I said to them, you need to understand where I'm coming from. But what I thought is really important to realize is that mental health has to be looked at from a different way. Mm-hmm. It needs to be looked at... First of all, no one is safe of ever having a problem. And also it can change really rapidly. And we should also become more aware that we should see it in a positive light, not looking at the deficits. We should look at, hey, how can I get more mental wealth, mm. not health? Like, you know. Mental wealth. Mental wealth. Wow. You're yeah. a mental wealth practitioner. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> it is because yeah, I. It's, I like it. It is because 
Psychologists are very often used as a crisis intervention, but we should be seen as a physiotherapist. Mm. Because I know that if I would ask my family or my friends, I'm like, hey, when you have a headache, tell me three things you can do to help yourself. What would you do if you have a headache? Drink Drink more water, water, take aspirin, lie down, dark room. Exactly. Mm. So now, different question. Tell me three things you can do when you have a difficult emotion. Punch a wall, stamp my feet, talk to somebody. (laughs) That's anger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, talk to somebody, change the environment I'm actually in. Yep. Take my dog for a walk. Like just try and change the scenario that I'm in. Like recognize that I'm in a bad place and it could be contributed to the stimuli around me and try and make adequate changes around that. Good. So you guys were actually quite good, but a lot of people would not know. Mm-hmm. But I also know that, you know. I had coaching in that. Yeah, so yeah. I, to be fair, I've I've had people suggest those things. So, yeah. And I think that's what is really important to know is that mental health, when they come and see a psychologist, we could also just prevent a lot of things. We should be used for prevention, mm. not for intervention. Well, that's what they say, right? Prevention is better than cure. Yes. And we could do a lot more in the preventative stage than when you are really struggling in your life because it's mm. a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it goes a little bit, once you have too much hardship in your life, it's really difficult to actually change it. Yeah. Whereas if you have a little bit, we can change it quite easily. Yeah. So before we carry on, I think that's something that the army is quite good at. Uh, certainly at my old unit, like I say, I can't speak for the regular army, but in the, spe- the special forces units, the psych, well, we call them screenings, but the the feedback you have to have with the psychs is, is quite regular That because they want to get on, well, they certainly give the impression that they want to get on top of things before it becomes an issue, but I think also they have a duty of care to make sure they're not- To not release a killing machine back into society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So before you're deployed, there's a psych screen. During your deployment, you usually have at least one psych screen. Before you're allowed to come home, there's a psych screen. And then there's, inter- like, even when there's nothing going on, there's, I think, a requirement every two years or something like that mm. to just sit down. And it doesn't have to be, it's not always necessarily long. I mean, mine are always like, how are you? Good. See ya. Like, but other people's is not so much, you know yeah. what I mean? And I think that's really important. And um, I think what's really important to notice is also that we as a society are really struggling to talk about mental wealth or mental health mm-hmm. because essentially when people say, oh, that person's depressed, they really don't know because depression is so complex. You really can't tell if a de- person is depressed or not. You have to ask questions and What I would like to tell people is before we throw these big names out there, you have to be aware that we actually have a guide, a diagnostic guide professionally that we have to follow. You have to meet a time criteria. You have to meet a lot of a certain quantity of symptoms have to be met and and how it impacts your social life and your work life and your stress life. Like it's quite a process to get diagnosed with something because for instance, you can have a panic attack but you don't have a panic attack disorder. Mm. They're very different things. So for Mm. instance, if you one day get bad news at work and you have a panic attack, a panic attack is like 20 minutes of intense fear and you feel like your heart's going to explode, you want to vomit or you feel like you're going to die, you're going to go crazy and you're sweating and your heart goes crazy. That's a panic attack. But that doesn't mean that you have a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. That just means you had intense anxiety because – to be diagnosed with a panic disorder, you would have to have them frequently in a certain amount of, I think it's a month time. Right. And there's you, a formula, right? There's a formula. Like I have to sit down and really go bring, it's called the DSM-5. It's our diagnostic statistic manual that we use for diagnosing people. I've brought it with me. And you basically 
look at these things because they have to have an impact in their life and it's not just a once-off occurrence. And I think that's also with our dogs what we forget. A dog can be anxious, but they don't have an anxiety disorder. Yep. Mm -hmm. We mentioned a couple of episodes ago, right, we talked about anxiety and you said, what are two knuckleheads with microphones can talk about this for? Which is why Bertie's here. We know an expert. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that's how we've come to this conversation, right? Because yeah. just to remind anyone that has forgotten when we said that or didn't hear that episode, is we, with our monkey brains, were banging our heads together trying about to talk anxiety. about anxiety. And we mm. said, you know what? We know an expert on this. Let's get her in to talk about it. But just before we go into that, speaking on the ladder where you're just saying when you have a reaction, we're very quick to label now, aren't we? And that's yes. the problem I'm finding with society. Pat and I were talking about this before when mm. we were attempting to put another podcast together was the reactivity by society to quickly label you as something. Like people feel that they just have to categorize you for like if, if something goes wrong, rather than saying, okay, what happened? They'll say, oh, this person's a, a lunatic, you know, but you're not always a lunatic. You're a lunatic for a reason. And it like unless it's ongoing, it's just because it's like the laid stress model. Mm. It's A plus B and suddenly C has breached the ceiling. There's always a ceiling in everything and that is fluctuating on the day. But now, unfortunately, you've breached the ceiling and you have a reaction to it. Whereas and- before you can remain completely calm and think, I can feel it. It's below the surface of the water, but it's there. And then it subsides as the day goes on, as you start changing your environment, talking to people, doing all the things that you can do to manage your stress. Who was there? Was an American like news anchor that had a panic attack live on air a few years ago? I can't remember his name. Uh, Brian Gumble was it? I can't remember. Might have been. He had like a full meltdown, full panic attack live on the news, and it was exactly that. I think it was Brian Gumble because he was accused of sexual harassment and I don't know, but yeah, I, I think he, it might have been. He had a giant one, and it was exactly laid stress. I heard a podcast with him post, and he's like, oh, "I was taking all kinds of drugs, and I had all these issues going on at home, and it all just." That was the, the bubble over right there and then. And as ex- for example, with panic disorders, there are exclusion criteria. So for me, as soon as a drug's involved, it's a very different game. Right. So, so that's what I mean. Like we have to be kind of kinder to those things and be aware because I don't want, lo- I don't want that these words lose power. But also what is really important to notice is that if we are all the time punishing people who use words around uncomfortable emotions, they will over time learn to not address them. Mm. And what is really important to notice is that your body doesn't distinguish between comfortable or uncomfortable emotions. You need all of them. Our society tells us that we should highlight on the good emotions. We should really enjoy them. And they give us very unrealistic expectations how many how many of those happy emotions we have. It's really skewed. Because what you do is essentially you don't learn how to be uncomfortable. And if you give your body this feedback loop of going like, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to feel anger. I don't want to feel jealousy. I don't want to feel grief. I don't want to feel sadness. Mm. You're kind of numbing yourself. But your body can't distinguish between comfortable and uncomfortable. So it just distinguishes or not not distinguishes, but it stops all emotions. Then you're really numb. And that's... Mm. A whole different And the problem. problem is, the other problem around that is, is the inevitability that it's you're going to experience at some stage. And if you haven't had like a- Inoculation. Inoculation against it, like the critical period of development in puppies. If you don't do that predisposition work for it, when you are exposed to it, it's a crisis. It's a complete crisis. Yep, it is. And do you know what's also fascinating that when I talk to people, they're like, oh, I've never had trauma in my life. You can have, so first of all, 
Trauma is also defined by the absence of good things happening. So it's not just bad things happening, too. it's mm. also the absence of good things happening. Okay. So for instance, my dog Luna hasn't been mistreated, but hasn't been socialized. Mm. So she had the absence, absence of good things, right? Yeah. So we have to keep that in mind that life, you don't have to have a negative trauma. You can just have a lot of other things happening in you. Yeah. So that makes sense. I've heard somebody misdiagnose a dog before where they said, this dog looks like it's been beaten by somebody where the dog just had inadequate socialization. I think that's more often the case than not, right? Yeah, right. The, the, the dog fighting rings and the, the bait dogs, they're just not as prevalent as they would have to be in mm. order to fit the stories that people are telling about their dogs. And yep. more often than not, the dog has issues with other dogs because he's never seen one. It's not, not because he's had a bad experience. Or the, the infamous man with sunglasses and a hat, it's not that he got beat by a guy wearing that. It's just that he's never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah, and, and look, I will... I realize that now because when I look at my dog, Luna, she is so noise sensitive because she she never had any exposure to noise. So every single time we have a new noise in the home, bring the box out. Mm -hmm. The magic box. Oh, yes. The magic box is all over my house. So so you use that sort of intermittently? Yes, but I don't know if that's the preferred way to do it. I think with her, it just should be that way, and I should always yeah, no, pick I the think next challenge. I think it is for sure. Like I, like even with my my own dogs, it's intermittent. You, it's like you find a problem, you toughen it, like put the band aid on, and keep going. Yeah, and and I really like it. Like I've only been doing it for a few days, but I see improvement. But that you've come back to it, or because you were doing it in the past, right? Uh, but, yes, yeah. no, but now it's a bit different. Right. But I need to take her to the vet. Right. Like. She's weird. Okay. It's beyond normal weird. But anyway. Um, so you're saying at the moment that she needs to be medicated? Is that what you're... No, I'm, I'm thing, saying I would like to have a blood test to yep. see what's yeah, happening. Good idea. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not saying... To me, she's still very manageable, but to me, she's just not as stable as she used to be. Yeah, Something's I've, changed without a reason yeah. you can discern, mm-hmm. and so you want to check health. Yeah. yeah, it's a good idea. Because she also shakes and she grinds her teeth. I'm wondering about pain. So. Yeah. Well, it's funny enough that you were talking about that because we were it's literally what we were. We just were talking literally about. talking about the fact that when people come to me for aggression management, the first thing now I suggest to them is prior to seeing me when I'm on the phone doing the consult with them, is have you seen a vet? Have you had bloods? And have you checked the ears and teeth of your dog? Like a proper examination, not just oh yeah, this dog looks okay to me feel the dog, look inside the extremities of the dog, make sure there's no obstructions, make sure that dog is not like have a rotten tooth or anything like that because they are constructs for behavioral modification. Yeah. Immediate. And something that can be resolved easily through pain suppression. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do. Yep. I think, you know, what I just want to tell people is it's okay to feel negative emotions. Don't be scared. It's okay to feel them and you need to feel them because they're part of life and they actually will give you resilience in the long run if you learn to be with them. Mm-hmm. And the difference between having a bad day and mental health is significant because it's the intensity and the duration of these feelings. And I've collected over the years a couple of metaphors and statements that people use to describe their mental health and I thought I'd bring them with me just to show, share with you guys. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So I had... A lady saying, having a mental illness is like playing cricket with a baseball. So for her, it was, you can never win. It always hurts. It always yeah. sucks. And it's always draining. Mm-hmm. Then I had another person saying, mental illness is like my baby brother. You never know when he will scream, cry, or lose control. 
So there is kind of like compassion there, but it's really hard to manage. Mm. Another one was, mine is a dark room where the light switch and door handles are missing. I'm lost. Mm. And that's a really common one. Like it's just so dark. I have people who can't even speak sometimes or they, they don't have words for their emotions. So I bring out story cards where they just can pick a card and talk about it because they don't have the abilities to talk for themselves. Yep. And that's the most common one. They pick a dark room with no exit. Wow. Yeah, it's sad. Another one is I see the shore, but I'm stuck waiting in this ocean's current. Like you don't make progress every day is a slog. Um, one of my all-time favorite ones, though, and that's one that I use very often, is that mental health should be seen like a bank account and you have different portfolios. And your psychologist or your counselor or your psychiatrist, we are your accountants. We are helping you manage your portfolios because you probably over the time have lost track where you spend your money. You maybe overdraft your resources. You don't know how to get money in or you totally have an old accounting program that just sets you up to fail from the beginning. And that's how I very often talk to people. Like a good psychologist like is like your emotional wealth accountant. We mm-hmm. help you increase your savings yep. and your fortune essentially. So that's what people sometimes like to hear because it's we have really bad marketing. Psychologists are having a really poor choice of words. Mm. I wish our marketing team would have been better, but people are scared of seeing me. I had people literally poop their pants in the waiting room because they had to see me. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's scared. And also I understand historically psychologists have been up to bad things, like especially in Austria we were involved of locking people away or killing people or – you know, Nazi era, we were not on the good side. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think the understand. issue with, with all the sciences is sometimes the words are bad. So like just in dog training, for example, like punishment and positive and negative. If Skinner had put more thought into the uh, assigning better words to those, we would have easier, less intimidating com- conversations at the moment. It's, it's interesting you say that that exact conversation came up in the class this week mm-hmm. at NDTF. The, the students were talking about, you know, like if it was a different word, maybe it would be better. But the reality is it's just a word. Yeah, but... And it's like a swear word. A swear word is something that is is primarily just a word that at some stage people have chosen to take offence to it. Yeah, but it has connotations outside of it. And it's like in psychology... Well, actually, is this psychology like when you talk about like personality types? Yeah. Is that neuroticism is... Uh, being neurotic is a personality type... And this is what got James Damore into so much trouble when he said that women tend to be more neurotic than men. And that is, that is factual. That Who's is James Damore? Uh, he wrote the Google memo and was sacked from Ah, uh, yes, yes. I know who you're talking about. Um, and it's just because that's the word. It wasn't like he – neurotic to us has a, a certain connotation – it has it stirs an emotion, but it's in the literature. That's the word. That's one of the personality types. There is, and and unfortunately, like we, for example, we don't just treat mood disorders. We also treat personality disorders. But mm-hmm. what a bad name is that? Like, you come yeah, to someone and you get exactly. diagnosed with a personality disorder. That's the last thing you want to hear. Yeah. Like it's so bad. And there would be so many better names out there. And and every time we get um our diagnostic manual reviewed or updated, I'm like, why have they not changed the name? Yeah. Like, well, that, that's the us. thing. And so to have a and to have an accurate conversation where we can't m- misinterpret words, we have to use the scientific words, but then they often don't fit 
the vernacular, the way we would casually use that word. And so you can upset people. And in dog training, it's a huge issue. We, we, that's not hard in this day and age anyway to upset, like to people. upset people. But, that's but in dog easy. training, I think we can often argue at the same point at each other because we're using different words. And like correction is a big word for me. You can't correct it. The way I use the word is you correction and punishment don't go together because correction is really a negative reinforcer because it, it stops, it stops everything and makes one thing happen. Like, so when I say, if I had a green dog that didn't know any behaviors, I could not correct that dog. People would say, then the dog is trying to bite me and I correct him. That's the term we will use. But in my mind, I can't correct a dog that doesn't know something because I can only ask for something and then use a correction. You can't correct it for action, only for abstinence. Exactly. And so it's just a, issue of definitions mm. but two people who agree on something a hundred percent can really fucking duke it out over and then after 10 minutes go oh we're talking about the same thing we're just using a word differently and i think certainly that it would apply to you right in in psychology because exactly that i don't want to hear i have a personality disorder no, and, and i beca- i have to say i've become really good at explaining to them what it is and what it does and i um I'm really learned to package the information so they can take it on board in, in a helpful way, not in a critical way. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing that I want to do is be another critic in their life. Yeah. You know, Essentially, a good psychologist is like a cheerleader. We want to support you. We want to cheer you up. And mm. we want to be there for you to help you and your motivator and, and your guide like a GPS or an accountant to make sure where does your money go in your wealth account, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's really unfortunate for us, but that's okay. We we're aware of it, so we troubleshoot it. But I I think words have a lot of power. So, for instance, I love the term "positive first train." Oh, I really like it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, um, ladies and gentlemen. Glenn Cook, <laughs> founder of the Positive First Movement. Yep. Yep. I'm glad. Without a word of a lie, that word came to me in a dream. Oh, it came to me in a dream, dreams. like I was thinking, I was dreaming about dog training, and the whole positive only, like it was a, it was somebody talking to me about, long story short, I don't want to go into it in great detail, but it was somebody came up to me and we were debating the whole, I'm a positive only trainer. And we was, somebody was saying to me, I don't like the term balance trainer, you know, like it doesn't summarize where we're doing it. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, and I, was, I thought, well, I actually like the term positive first. And I said that to the person and they looked at me and go, oh, I haven't heard that before. And I woke up and I immediately fucking hit Google and I looked straight away and I thought, nobody said it. I'm claiming it. That's so amazing. It came to me in a dream. That's such a good dream. Yeah. I wish I would have those dreams. But I must have been thinking about <laughs> it at some stage because I immediately grabbed my phone and looked up the term positive first trainer and I couldn't find it anywhere. I thought, maybe maybe I am the first. Maybe it was, hey. I like it. It's spiritual now. It's a, I've made it ethereal. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> come from a dream. <laughs> Rip is starting to understand dreams now. It's really cool. So, you know, I'm sure he, I'm sure he'd been dreaming since he was born, but he can now talk to me about them. So in the morning, he'll tell me about what he dreamt, and he like he's starting to understand that things that can't be real can happen in his dream. It's really cool That's to talk cool. to a three year old about it. It is cool. Yeah, and he'll convey like you know this is what happened, and he'll have bad dreams and he'll have good dreams, and he'll wake up in the middle of the night and come running in, and I think oh no, it's a bad dream, and he'll tell me this fantastic story. That, uh, and he'll be all excited about the dream. And then I'm like, okay, go back to bed and have like another one. He'll like run off 
And then like I go and check on him and he's like jamming his eyes shut. Like he's like trying to fall asleep fast. <laughs> oh, I need so to get cute. back to that land. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, it's sorry. That's on the so topic cute. of dreams, it's just something that um, I didn't, it's I guess a developmental step that I wasn't really aware of. Like that he can understand what a dream, that it's not real and that it is a dream and he can tell me about it. Yeah, no, dreams are, I love dreams. They um a bit poo-pooed in a scientific world, but in connotation to talking to people, they're so powerful. Mm. Like just because we can't put numbers to them, but they're so powerful. Well, Glenn recently had a dream that came up with yes, the positive first movement. I loved that dream. Yeah. It's- I had a dream. <laughs> <laughs> Narelle and I often talk to each other about some of the dreams that we have because I agree with you. I think they're significant to the way that you're feeling at the time. And what is suppressed and unspoken in reality, in real world, can be conveyed in the way that your your mind is active while you're sleeping. You know, it's something that's been, it hasn't been dealt with properly, something that's been unsaid that the, con- the, un- the unconscious mind is saying, well, this is not resolved, this needs to be explored further. So it is explored through fantasy. I don't know, but that's my... My thoughts around it. That's totally true. And I think also there are stress indicators. Like I have this reoccurring dream that I failed my math exam and I know that when I have that dream, I'm stressed. Mm. Yeah. So I know. But then I also sometimes have, I'm like, whoa, that dream really shows that you put something asleep, you cope with something really well. So I think dreams have some form of measurement and they also show a little bit about how well you're doing. Um, but coming back to the topic. Good work. Thank you. Segwayed well. Thank you. So what I thought is like in your podcast previously, you talked a lot about anxiety. Mm. Like that was the main thing mm-hmm. where you dropped my name. So do you guys know what causes anxiety? Well, I feel, I don't know. What I feel like is a lack of control of outcomes. Nope. I think anxiety is is more about you're over-predicting the possibility of what could happen. Like you're constantly thinking into the future about all the negative could be's. That's a symptom. Yep. Okay. So you're, yeah. Okay. Oh, but so the causes. The cause. Yep. The cause is basically it's complex, but mainly it is, um, it's triggered not by a single factor, but a combination of things. And for example, personality factors, difficult life circumstances and physical health. Like that's why I and Narelle love working together because, you know, your physical health can have a massive mm-hmm. um, contribution to that. But they can, anxiety can look differently. It can portray itself differently. And we have different anxiety disorders. And they sometimes by your vulnerabilities that you have, like personality factors, like, you know, who are you? Are you a bit of a stress head? Or your family, has your mum been a stress and then passed that on to you? Or genetics or, you know, circumstances. They all influence what comes out at the other end in regards to a pathological put a picture so i'm not talking about just being anxious i'm talking about pathology mm. okay so do you know the most common pathological mental health issues around anxiety no no so there's the generalized anxiety that's basically when you have a lot of what if worries like okay. you, your anxiety hops from one topic to the other it could be money could be relationships could be job and it lasts for quite a long time like they that could be one thing. Another thing could be that you have a phobia or that you um, have a panic disorder. So uh, different things. But then 
there are other presentations, for example, OCD, where you have a lot of anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder. There's also a lot of anxiety there. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to know that there are different types of anxiety mm. and they have to be diagnosed because they all have to meet different criteria and they have to be around for quite a long time. Mm. But we, as a, as a clinical psychologist, they have quite different treatments. So it's really interesting to look at what type of anxiety do they have. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think, it, like, in my experience, the reason I would explain anxiety the way I do lack of control of the outcomes is where I see anxious dogs is usually because of unclear signals and the dog doesn't know how to avoid the problems, right? Like either the... the so it's a bit learned helplessness? Well, yeah, not necessarily learned helplessness because I would say then they just give up. Like this is like a dog that is anxious in the home is because he doesn't know what is the correct behavior in the home or like how to relieve... What the outcome is. Yeah, how to relieve so stress. Have, and so that's how like an anxious dog that I might... I might Maybe I'm using the term anxiety incorrectly, but like a dog that say is constantly pacing in the house and is stressed in the house, usually that is like a dog that can't control something that it wants to control. Yeah, that's, that's you know, for, for animals. And I think in, in humans, we would use the term self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like their actions have a positive impact. Mm-hmm. But I actually, that's a really good segue, because in one of your podcasts, you talked about is anxiety contagious? Mm. I yeah, believe it I, is. Well, I, and I talked about that because I certainly have had a client that I feel imposed her anxiety onto her dog. Bingo. Mm. And I would love to talk about that because I would like to talk about more dogs now, not so much human okay. anxiety, but the relationship between humans and dogs. Uh-huh. So there is a concept in psychology and it's called transgenerational transmissions. Big word. Transgenerational transmissions. transmissions. I guess you don't ha- you don't know what it is because I did not know it till a couple of months ago. That, that's why we brought you in as the Thank big gun. Thank you. <laughs> big gun. Yeah. No, I can't <laughs> even do 10 push-ups at the moment. But anyway, so I first saw the concept of transgenerational transmissions. It's such a big word. Basically, transgenerational transmissions means that what is overwhelming and unnameable for the parents or the previous generation is passed on to those who are closest to, like usually children. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it in with, inter- with dogs, so a bit, we don't care about the species. Sure. But basically, what it means is like we pass on what we can't carry and we pass that on. So, for example, the fears that we have in our lives. Yeah. So, for example, when you have a, a, gener- a family that has been exposed to war, they very often you can see that their children, despite not having experienced it, will also have mental health indicator similar to their parents. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, is, that, it, is, is that it, an epigenetics? Yeah. I was going to ask if yeah, it's... That, that's part of it, but mm. I'm going to bring it down to behavior. Okay. Okay. Yep. So, what's interesting is that these transmissions, these behaviors, these acts, these thoughts, these beliefs are then being forwarded to their next generation. It could be your child or your dog. And that turns them into transgenerational patterns. So you have a whole cluster of Mm -hmm. things. Does that make sense? Mm. So for instance, you could have an anxious parent that always worries about the what if scenarios, always really um, worried about safety, really risk averse, always tells them be careful. So then the parent was anxious. So then you probably will have also an, a child that is quite anxious because that's what it picked on. Mm. So it, it moves, right? It moves from one person to another person. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So we pass our unhelpful traits or actions onto the next generation. In our case, we think that the next generation is our dogs. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And that dog then shows up with a whole pattern, a whole cluster of issues similar to what the owner experiences. Pat, can you please just briefly share your story again? Because I would love to use that as an example to explain it. Uh, so I had a client, I had all sorts of issues in the house with a rescue dog that when they first got the dog, it was fine. There were no issues. There was great dog fit in the house. And then several months later, there was a huge gamut of issues. Uh, one of which was a huge explosion at the door, at the sound of the doorbell. Mm-hmm. And I was talking whilst I was talking to them about some possible approaches to fixing this or to dealing with it, the doorbell went off and I watched the owner of the dog that I was talking to had a really significant reaction to the doorbell, like something really noticeable. And then by pure fluke and luck, the way we were sitting, we were at the kitchen table and the dog had just gone and was chilling out and I could look over her shoulder to see the dog and I saw she had a a very serious reaction to the doorbell and then the dog had a reaction. And it was clear in that moment that the dog was not reacting to the doorbell. The dog was reacting to her. So she transmitted her emotions onto her dog. It certainly appeared that way. And I said to her, I said to her, hey, you don't happen to have any mental health issues going on, do you? And she was like, oh, yeah, and then rattled <laughs> off all these things to me. And I was like, well, I can't help with that. But I can tell you that I, I think you're putting this onto your dog. And that's exactly, that's the word transmission. So this is, I've been looking for a whole year for that process, what it's called, because I can see it, I can see it in the leash and everything. But there's actually a word for it. It's called transmissions, ladies and gentlemen. So that's the word we use. Transmission. Transmission. And the technical term is transgenerational transmissions. Transgenerational transmission. Yeah. I'm, I'm adding that to my library. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> but I thought I, so you had someone who had mental health str- struggles, mm-hmm. but I don't want to say that everyone who has an anxious dog has mental health issues. Sure. It goes much simpler. And I actually, I tried really hard to find in the literature an example that would explain it similar to a dog leash and that also sim- um, symbolizes that not everyone has to have an issue to pass on these transmissions. Okay. So the example that I have is around the 9-11 in America. Mm-hmm. And the literature talks about um, Santa Claus. And the Santa Claus was, um, his name was Maurice. And Maurice noticed a massive change in parents' behavior after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So what he noticed was that people, parents, would not let go of the hands of their children after 9-11. And they would want that their child has a really good experience with Santa Claus, but they were holding really tight to their child's hand. And the kid was all of a sudden quite aware of that. Like our dogs on the leash, they are super sensitive to our behavior. Mm. And essentially the message was to that child, hey, Santa Claus is something to be aware of, mm-hmm. scared of, essentially, or anxious about. But the parent wasn't aware of that. The parent was just like, whoa, it's 9-11. I'm so glad I have my loved ones around. I hope I don't lose them. I'm really anxious. Mm-hmm. But just by holding that hand tighter and not letting go and not being carefree, they had an emotional transmission. Yep. And so, if, Yeah, it makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does it, do you get it? Do yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, so that's the closest to the lead that I found in the literature, that sometimes our emotional state – we pass it on in circumstances that the child would not make that connection with. Like they're totally unaware. They're just like dogs. They just see what's in front of them and then they feel the behavior change, the transmission of the emotion, and then they have a new takeaway. Yeah, a lot of aggression issues are 
relevant in that area as well because as a dog approaches, the handler will then tighten the lead. Yeah, Yeah, and the dog is thinking, well, I don't know what this means, but traditionally it means that something bad is about to occur. Therefore, the anxiety peaks in the dog and then it's, well, it's relative. I mean, something happens from that. There is a responding behaviour. And I'm the classical example for that. So, so they, you know, this is where if I look at why my dog Luna was so aggressive at once, which we did have a bad example, but I didn't help it either. And I think that is really important. And that brings me a little bit back to my, to the, my accountant metaphor where I'm like, if you as a person haven't learned to check in with yourself and you are not aware where your outgoings in your emotional wealth are and your ingoings and you don't know how you feel before you take your dog for a walk – you're going to have transition uh, transmissions throughout your walk and you're not aware. Like you could have a stressful day and you're just unaware and you're in your head and you hold the lead tight and just whoever, whatever, I don't know what the dog's going to take away from it. My dog took away, going for a walk is not fun anymore because you're just cranking it. Mm. Like it's, you're not relaxed. Mm. Caesar Milan talks about the calm assertive energy and there you pass that through the leash. And I, I agree that it gets passed down, but I'm not sure that the dog is like feeling your energy. That feels a bit woo-woo to me, but I think dogs read your body language more than anything. No, I, I mean the behavior. Yeah. But I mean, like say in the leash, like say that- It's a bit ethereal, his explanation. Yeah, it's a little bit sort of too fluffy for me, Whereas, but I, I know for sure that dogs are hardwired to read human body language. There's experiments to prove that. A six-week-old puppy that's never seen a human being before can take a cue from a human. A chimpanzee can't even do that. But- yeah, I feel like they can read your body language in those stressful situations and go, you're stressed, I should be stressed. Or they look at you and go, you're cool, I should be cool. However, there is evidence to support that when we feel certain things and when we are flush with cortisol and adrenalized and so forth, that our body chemistry changes of and course, dogs yeah. can smell and it. They can, and but again, yeah. it's a physical thing. It's They can smell it, that. It's yeah. not like they're but magically that could be, attached. That's also could be considered part of the energy that you're giving off. Yeah, true. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't I don't I know that there's a bit of a gap, but I do know that we are physical components. Like if you meditate, you can see that a lot of it you where you put your intention, all of that, that can change things, right? Mm-hmm. And I think dogs they are so good to be in the present moment that they can sense tiny shifts. Like yeah, Luna yeah. is obsessed with the wind. She hates the wind. She mm. notices the wind before I do. Like they're just so in tune. In tune with life. And also what they don't have is that we are taught to think about things in a certain way. Yeah. They are neutral. Mm. Like they are better at physics and chemistry and, and observation and behavior than we are. Yeah. And, and and sometimes I wonder, because I talked to, to you about how Luna is actually quite unwell at the moment, I wonder that she picks up on me because I've been unwell. Mm. So, so, you know, like... It, it's interesting. It's sure. It's Can possible. I just spin out of this for a second, just on this? I like your thoughts around it. I was reading this documentation. There's a company called or an organization called iHeart. And what they're doing is they found that they've they've done research in the physical realm that the way that your heart beats, it kind of gives off a resonance. And when you meet somebody that you resonate with, your heartbeat and their heartbeat can synchronize. Like they they are suggesting on a physical realm that if you have an attraction to somebody that your heartbeats can actually synchronize. It's almost like Wi-Fi between the body. So it's interesting. It's an interesting study. I don't know enough about it to be conclusive or have an opinion myself on it, but 
I was reading about it and they were talking about it and they've said that on the studies that they've done, this is what they're finding, that it's almost like a body Wi-Fi system. How can I argue with that when I don't, I don't really know enough about it? But it's interesting nonetheless when we're talking about the ethereal or the woo-woo side of it. Yeah. Is there is there evidence to support that this could be a, a case that we, we don't – we only know the science we know. That's primarily we what we – what, what an argument we have. And I, But I do know that, for example, if you have group classes, like group therapy, it has a very different – I'm going to use the heart term math. energy. It's not iHeart. It's heart math. Heart math, yeah. Heart math. I've heard about heart math. That there is something to it, and I can't explain it. Did, sorry, we're talking about group therapy. You say that's good often, or oh, group therapy depends on a person. Some people love it. Some people are not suited for it. it yeah, depends. Oh, let me remind me when we're not on the air to tell you a story about the time I got made to go to group therapy. I know that story. You oh, already I told, told me. I, told you about <laughs> I know that. that story. Oh my god. So, so I, I'm just saying, there's a lot of things we don't understand yet, right? But what I do understand, and this is maybe. What I do know to talk about is when we look at about why is a dog anxious, mm-hmm. I thought about this a lot because that's what I want to really do in my next workshop. I want to help people realize how much they contribute to their dog state. Awesome. Mm. Um, and what I've identified is, is A, they are not self-aware of what's happening for them in their life. And um, I, I want to show them how they can anchor themselves. I'm not going to call it drop your anchor. <laughs> big story about it if you want to go. Oh, that is so good. That is, um, I was really having the T-shirts ready with drop the anchor and then I thankfully went on Urban Dictionary and had a look and I'm not going to say what it means on air, but this is not what I do. What Urban Dictionary says is not what I'm teaching you in my class. You can say what, what it is. It's just when you pull your dick out, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like whacking your willy out. And I'm like, oh whacking my God. Whacking your willy out. That was, anyway, so it's called anchoring yourself. I'm not teaching people how to whack your willy out uh, That's actually the new slogan for the canine paradigm. Anchoring Get rid of that. Drop your anchor. Yeah, drop, drop your, your anchor. anchor. <laughs> Good. Anchoring yourself sounds like something you might do at home alone. <laughs> yeah, you do you. I do my professional things. But but basically, it was so hilarious. I was so lucky. Oh my god, um, it made me giggle so hard. Um, but what what I noticed is that people are unaware. And then what I came to the conclusion with my training is that some people use dogs as a crutch in life. Yes. Mm. And I've been so I'm not I'm not talking about assistance dogs. I'm talking about everyday people like me who used my dog as a crutch. Like if I look at why people get dogs, it tells me actually a lot about their circumstances mm-hmm. and what they used the dog as a crutch for. And for example, I got Luna when I was having quite a difficult time in my life. I was quite lonely. My husband was traveling a lot. I had, I just started making friends in Australia. And for me she became my friend, right? And I don't have a problem when people use crutches because animals like dogs are like unicorns. That's the closest you will ever come to pure love. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful. And they have Mm -hmm. a lot of beautiful effects on us. Like they help us get out. They have a lot of emotional uh, support for us. Like they're beautiful. I'm not arguing that. So I'm not, I'm okay if you use a dog as a crutch. But what I'm not okay is if you don't have a rehab plan, if you don't know that you have the dog for this crutch and you're not working on these things whilst you have the dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I very often notice in dogs, and I love coming to seminars because I can, you know, watch and observe, is that people are getting so used to having a dog and a dog starts fulfilling all their needs that they don't have. So for instance, if we talk about being connected or social isolation or all those things, is that their world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and there's more and more weight on the dog because 
First of all, there are lots of emotional transmissions onto the dog because the, you cry onto the dog, you have a shitty day, you go to the dog and you forget that the dog needs to be an independent, healthy being and has their own needs. And that mm. sets a whole circle off. It's funny too, Bertie, that you've sort of reignited a thought that I've had where there's a lot of people who've only become significant because of their dog. Like people have never taken, paid any attention to them. So they can actually develop a narcissistic component because all of a sudden they're sort of thrust into a limelight because their dog has gained some attention. And whereas they've been, I don't know, they've been sort of desiring this attention all their life. It kind of happened to me in the early days is that I was unbeknownst to people. And then because I had a very well-known dog. Harley. Harley. Yeah, because he was getting a lot of exceptional attention. People suddenly put the dots together that, him and me were a team and then people started to pay attention to me and ask who I was. So people started to say, well, who are you? What's your role in all this? And I said, well, I trained the dog. And suddenly that gained me a lot of attention. People started to look in my direction in, uh, a, a lot more. So it's uh, I kind of used him as a crutch in the early days that he was my my sort of leapfrog into the social society of dog training. But that, that's probably on the positive end, right? Like there's no harm to him or to you in that. I think you just need to be aware. Like, for instance, I don't think that if you have, if you're lonely, I think a dog is a great thing. But if you stop working, connecting with humans and, and you hide and, and you do everything around your dog... Maybe not so healthy for both of you. Yeah. On the other hand, you could have, for instance, in a sports world, you could have such a good time with your dog because it's easy, it's fun, it's engagement, mm. that all of a sudden you become disconnected from your family because you go like, well, that's that's not as easy as engaging yeah. with my dog. So you just have to have awareness. Yeah, that's fascinating. Something that I think I've just put together in my head, now correct me if I'm wrong, this is good so I don't have to play this out over the next two days, I can actually check with you right now, is that... I think a lot of people in dogs, I think we could all probably agree that there's some broken people in dogs, right? There's a lot of people- oh, You think? <laughs> like, no, I don't like the term well, broken. Okay, okay, let me, let me fix that. <laughs> there's some people who have significant mental Fractured. health issues in dogs, right? And what I see at a lot of these dog training events is people who have their own sort of issues going on and they're good dog trainers. I've seen them fix problems with dogs. I've seen them get great outcomes with dogs yet they have their own dog that has a variety of issues that they have not fixed despite fixing it in other people's dogs. And there's a few people, I'm not thinking of anybody specifically, but I think there's a lot of people I could put into that That That's basket. probably me. Do like, you think, my dog's not fine. <laughs> yeah, but you're aware of it. <laughs> and that's, I think, the you're difference. You're aware of it. And you've been talking about this. I think the cliff notes and everything that you've been talking about is being aware versus not being aware, That's but you're aware of it. But so, so do you think in some people's case, it could be a case of not wanting to actually resolve their dog's issue because they like that the dog has an issue because they have an issue? I don't think so. I, I honestly, when I see people, I think they would always want to wish a better life for their dog. I know that a lot of people really don't like seeing their dog distressed. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it comes down more to awareness, how to change it or your own awareness. Because I could take you and I'm not saying that this is true, but I could assess your relationship with Remco and I'm going like, not that it's true. This is just as an example. It probably right? is true. Yeah. No. <laughs> but if I, if, if I would think about it, I'm like, whoa, Remco gets a lot of time. 
Mm. You know, like it's really fun with Remco. So where is the other time going? And I would be the same. Like when I got Luna, I remember my husband having a conversation with me. He's like, you're devoted to the dog industry. You're going every Saturday, every Sunday, you hang out. You don't even talk to me what you're doing anymore. I'm not even part of that part of your life because it doesn't interest him, right? So I think that just peaks in our life are sometimes we are more aware and unaware. And then hopefully we have people that tell us that, like this is again where we need to be connected and have friends, mm. where we go like, hey, can I just check in with you? Because this is how I feel. Is this how you feel? Mm. So, yeah. Something else on that topic. <laughs> My brain's going 100 miles an hour here, so just forgive if I'm spewing nonsense. But I also, I ebb and flow on the idea that people are reflected in their dogs. You know, some people will say, oh, you know, like the people, your dog is often a reflection of your own personality. And I, sometimes I think that is total bullshit. And then other times I go, oh, wow, this is really true. And maybe it's about like, maybe you infer your personality onto the dogs. Maybe that you choose a dog that has a similar personality to you. Like for example, if you look at my dog Luna again, I don't, I think I'm not as anxious at my dog. I think I'm quite a resilient person. I have to be in my job, Mm -hmm. but I picked a dog with issues. I knew she had issues. Mm. So my psychologist comes through in the choice of my dog, Mm. right? And then what also came through, and this is why we probably had a harder time changing her behavior, is a lot of the things that I have to do to set her up to win is really difficult for me. Mm. So for instance, for me, it's really difficult, or not so much now, but in the past, it was really difficult to tell people, my dog does not like humans. Psychologists love humans. So, so I, it, this is really difficult, right? So it challenges me on certain aspects. Yeah. But I also know that there are studies done where we do know that people are quite accurately picking the dog according to the owner. They're, what, they're called spontaneous transmissions of character traits. So that can have Spontaneous transmissions of, of character, character traits. traits. Mm. And like if I look even at, at other evidence in my life, for example, I have two stepchildren, right? You take my oldest one. I, I haven't been at her birth, like I haven't been from a young age on. She's very close to my personality. Mm-hmm. And and her, her biological mom is very different to me. So there's a lot of what we take on in how we are with people, you know, what we do, it's nurture versus nature. But I was wondering about the same question. I don't think it, it it's a hard rule. No, I, it's definitely not a rule, no. But I, I feel like it sort of comes in 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 – it ebbs and flows. Like you look, you know, I, and the thing is I've had multiple dogs sometimes at the same time. They have totally different personalities, so you can't infer too much. But then there's certain things, and I know people have said it to me, like with my current dog, and he's the dog that we talk about here, but he's just the one I have at the moment. I've had lots of dogs. He's me. Yeah, and, and I think dogs <laughs> can bring outside in us, you yeah. know. I think dogs can really resonate with different sides in us. Yeah. So that, that's a good point. I don't so, think Randy's me. Yeah, that's it. So like Remy, he's me, or am I him? I think the more energy you put into something, the more you shape it the way you want it. Yeah. Yeah, I believe yeah. in that. Yeah. yeah that, that you mold it to your liking. Y- you do. Yeah. Like mm. Luna is now very – I wish she would be less anxious and healthier. But if I look at her behavior, she's very close to the dog I want. I picked a dog – initially, My one of my criteria was I want a dog that enjoys cuddling. She's the best cuddle dog in the universe mm-hmm. to the point she's annoying, which I love. But I also reinforce that in her. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we do build our own environment to a degree. Yeah. It's crazy, huh? 
It's it's good. It's called self-efficacy. We can make a change in the world. We have yeah, an yeah. impact. I definitely don't think that Randy is anything like you. No, he's not. I'm more like a Rottweiler than I'm a German Shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. Which is our logo. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. I'm, I've constantly been compared to Rottweilers over the years. People have said you're, you're much more like a Rottweiler than you are a German Shepherd. And I don't take insult or disagree with that. I actually, I resonate with that statement. Yeah. Well, you are Mr. Roddy. I am Mr. Roddy. But yeah, the more I think about it sitting here, like the more... My dog is a reflection of my personality currently, but I do spend a lot of time with that dog and I have put a lot of work into that dog. But like- Can be serious, likes to fuck around a lot. Well, that's it. Injures himself like crazy. That's exactly it. it. Yeah, it sounds like Patch Stewart. Is a doofus, (laughs) is a doofus, loves to hang around, will fucking be cool all day, should not be left unsupervised, has has a- Yeah, you two are are similar. Fairly robust brain, very brittle body. Like <laughs> we're the same, mm. but isn't that also nice that you get to experience that? Because I do think we learn from it every single time. I was—I remember one person said to me, "Your dog is the spitting image of you," and that person did not know me, and I was like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, you don't even know me because what I would see in my dog is that oh, I like to help him fix things. Like I'm like, oh, let's change that, and and I have a really driven side. Like I like a challenge, so mm. that's definitely Luna, but then also really soft side that can always be pleased with food. <laughs> so so. I, I have a philosophy, Birdie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think whatever you look for, you'll find within reason, except if it's a unicorn. But <laughs> if I, I think if you look for ugly in something, I think you'll find the ugly. I think if you look <laughs> for comparisons, you'll find the comparisons that you need that make sense to you. I agree with that. I think yeah, that I think so too. People yeah. who go on witch hunts find them. Yeah. And you can always find something negative. Like there are famous um, experiments where people had no – sorry, coming back to the topic mental health – had no mental health issues but were locked into a psychiatry facility and they were treated. And there was the people who wanted to see psychological – pathological problems and them saw them mm. you know like it's it's all with the lens you view it yes and i think that's the one of the messages that we have to have with awareness you can remove those lenses and that's what i'm working really hard like i've put already so much work in my next workshops because i want to teach people you need to be more aware first of all you need to be more aware of your emotional state here is what you can do to be fairly neutralizing your emotional state Anchoring yourself, not dropping the anchor. (laughs) I know we need to wrap up and I want to talk about, I want to sort of close out and talk about anxiety in these workshops, but I have a question that I want to ask. Sure. We've got a psych in the room. I know that people are listening and like, oh, it's, it's the podcast and they get birdie. Pat's getting free therapy while he's doing a podcast. No, he doesn't get therapy. (laughs) And all I have to do to pay for it is let a few thousand people listen. (laughs) But fuck you. I'm, I'm doing it. So, Someone told me a long time ago that there were two guaranteed ways to get PTSD and that if you didn't do those two things, you would probably be okay. And he said, the first thing is guaranteed, the first guaranteed way to get it is to want it. And the second is to commit atrocities. And if you never do those two things, you're probably going to be okay. And I have never done anything that I would regret doing. I've never done anything outside the rules of engagement or anything like that in in battle. And I've never, there are people who I think for sure can give themselves PTSD and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of, this is the general consensus in, in my old fraternity was that we used to call it uh, letting the cougar in your car, right? It's a, it's from the Ricky Bobby movie, right? It's like, don't let it in. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we would say to people when people would eventually tip over the edge, it used to be called catching the cougar, right? Oh, he caught the cougar or the cougar caught him. But I think that if I think my leg is broken, I can't break my leg from thinking that my leg is broken. But if I think I have PTSD and I want to have PTSD, I can get real PTSD and then it's real when I've got it. So that you can, so to me, there are different constructs overlapping. So I disagree with the first statement. I had people who didn't want it and still had PTSD. No, so I'm not saying that you can't get it. I'm not saying that you have to be complacent in getting it. I'm saying that if you want it, you can get it and it's real. I think the mind... Like I certainly, let me be clear because I, I don't want Manifestations? to... Manifestations? No, I don't want to say that everybody that has PTSD wanted to get it. That's, that's definitely not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that if you are open to the idea of it, if you're going into a war zone or wherever and you say, well, it's highly likely I'm going to experience things that are going to be with me for life and are going to cause me issues. The same person that also says, I'm going for a mad time. I'm going to have a cool time. This is going to be the best. I'm hanging out with my buddies. If their experiences are the same, the guy that said it's highly likely this is going to cause me issues is more likely to have issues, right? So I think the, the army is a very special field, first of all. Like I don't see many army people with PTSD. It's by no means my expertise. But I do think that having a more neutral to positive mindset is always an increase as it helps us to be more resilient, mm-hmm. right? Because you focus on different things. If you go in and you go like, I want to have a good time, you focus on the laughs, the smiles, the jokes, you falling into the poo stream, having a good time, laughing it off, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're in an anxious position, you probably worry about it. So there are things you can do, and I think that's why the army screens people so much because you you need someone who's really resilient in their mind. Mm-hmm. But I, out of context of the army, I had people who were totally unaware that they're gonna be hit by a massive life event within the next ten seconds, and they had it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying that sometimes oh, I'm asking, is it possible that someone can talk themselves into it? No, that's, you st- that's not enough. You can, you can maybe make it worse, okay. but it's not enough in my opinion. Okay. Cause it's actually super complex. Like I have a lot of people who had a super traumatic experience, but they still don't have PTSD because you need to, again, meet actually PTSD is, has a huge diagnostic assessment mm-hmm. and you have to meet various criteria with a lot of symptoms. So it's a whole combination of things. Right. And that's only that's only one thing mm-hmm. that you would prevent yourself with. I do think that if you if you can help yourself to see the lighthearted things in things and to be using strategies to stay in a neutral mind frame or in a positive mind frame, it will help you, but it's just maybe increasing your chances to help you. Yeah. It's not enough. It's a, it's a tricky one to talk about, especially because I'm an idiot and don't really understand what I'm talking about. It's and also, you understand you have, it fully. <laughs> you also have a very little view of it. You yeah. have an army view, but you don't see the big picture. Yeah. Well, so and another interesting thing that happens is regularly is you, what happens on deployments is often that it's the support staff, cooks and that sort of thing, who never actually go into any dangerous areas that end up with the worst mental health issues afterwards. And people would say that, oh, it's because the SF guys are chosen mentally more robust because they're selected and go to do that. But I've always felt the opposite and I've retrieved a lot of criticism for this is that I think that their time in deployment is far more stressful because they are not out involved in it and they don't really fully understand the threat picture. So when they're in the base, they feel there is a constant threat and it's a threat that they're really not in control of. Whereas when I'm living out in the village 
and I understand the threat a lot better, I'm first of all, I'm in control of putting myself into mm. threat because I seek out the trouble. I'm not just waiting for it to happen to me. Do you know what? I have strong feelings around that whole lack of control. Yeah, which is probability. why. So to go back, this is why yeah. I feel like this is often the source of anxiety. Yeah, that's my def- in. If anyone ever bothers to ask me about what cruelty is, my my definitions in terms of cruelty is when you don't give a species the ability to control outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the lack of control, which I think is it's highly stressful. It's highly stressful, and so if you're causes a lot of problems. If you're in a war zone as a cook, right, and you're in a very secure base, but you've never been outside that base, so you don't fully understand how secure that base is. Mm. Uh, And of course, it can be rocketed, and people do like there are, but the the chance of getting hit by a rocket in a base is worse than winning the lottery. Um, It's highly stressful to not understand that, so they're under threat all the time. Whereas as uh, like a, someone in my old role, I'm actually seeking out trouble to get into it. So, mm. And I understand that I'm not in any danger when I'm in the base. I don't even remember like one, I don't know if it was a study or just a comment. So sorry, fellow peers, if I'm doing it mis- disjustice. But I do know that from memory that, for instance, 9-11, right? People who had the ability to run away had a higher chance of getting PTSD than people who were stuck. Really? I think um, I'm very sure I read about something like that. I think if you have the ability to physically trigger your nervous system to be able to run away and mobilize, I can get the fuck out of here, you have a much higher chance of being okay-ish. Oh, okay-ish. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Um, um, not because you, t- you can take action so you're not stuck. Your nervous system is triggered into fight and flight and they are survival mechanisms, mm-hmm. which is helpful in those moments, right? And overall you also increase your chances of not being hit. So I don't know, but just that's one thing I comes to mind when I think about your question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll make this relevant to dogs because that's how I feel like sometimes when the dog doesn't understand the threat picture, the dog is sometimes the cook in the house, right? He's the cook in the base. He's the guy there who doesn't really understand that there is no threat and he's under, therefore under constant threat because he doesn't get the picture. Whereas you who come and go and you say the mailman's nothing, he brings the mail because you're the special forces guy that's going out there and engaging with the mailman and know that this is not a threat. But do dogs have constant switched on worrying? Because to me, dogs are, to me, dogs are very in the present moment thing. So for instance, I've, I've thought about this question a lot because Luna is so anxious that I'm like, is she worrying about thing or is she just seeing thing that triggers it? That's a big difference to me. Mm -hmm. Cause if I see a trigger, I can fix it. I can. Mm. Yeah. That's the difference, isn't it? But I don't, I to this day don't know if dogs worry, but, I don't know either. I've watched her and she looks like she worries, but if I really observe and I was a bit obsessed with this, she's basically tracking the wind flow in the house and also what she does. So she's scared of thunder? So that's an exposure to the trigger all the time. Yeah. Is so she scared of thunder? Not super bad. But she, she, she can be. Because they can be pre-eliciting stimuli that one precedes the other and therefore yeah. like if the wind blows and the leaves start falling – then, you know, and it starts raining, then that can predict that thunder is coming next. And, you know, one one feeds off another. So It's a chain. Yeah, it's a chain of behavior. It's, well, it's a chain of stimuli that the animal looks at and goes, well, if, it, if it's blowing, it's going to thunder. To Luna, it's different. So she looks for the she – ha- she's not great with thunder, but the reason why she tracks it is we rarely, rarely had the fire alarm go off. But she knows that when we're cooking, the first thing is we open windows and there's a higher chance of the fire alarm going off. So she, at the moment, when we open windows to increase the airflow, she looks at the fire alarm, which to her is really She's pre-cured. Yeah. Mm. 
And it doesn't matter which window it is at the moment. Yep. And that's the issue of classical conditioning is that it can the new stimulus that previously had no function can take the actual function. Well, it can actually give the feeling of the bad thing without it ever yep. needing to happen again. Yeah, so we have a lot of – and also it can be a kitchen pot at the moment, just taking it out. But anyway, so to me, I don't know if dogs worry, but to me, Luna looks like she's worrying, but if you track it down, she has triggers. And so what you need to do in that situation is try and break the chain. We should talk about that. Mm. Yeah. When there's a chain, sometimes a chain is awesome and sometimes a chain is going to really fuck you up. It's, it's, it's such a tricky thing to talk about and to understand. This is what I mean. Well, classical conditioning works in both ways, both in a positive aspect and an aversive aspect. Yeah. But I mean, like say my example before was bad when I say the mailman because the mailman is very reliable. So he comes every day. And so the, you, you tend to get dogs that will be aggressive towards the mailman being they, and they think they can push him away. But and they, they do. Can. They, they do push him away. Mm. It's the, the delivery guy. Who, who knows when he's going to come, right? The mailman comes roughly the same time every day. The dog will usually have some sort of trigger, like the light on the grid. You know, he can tell when the mailman's going to come. There's something that announces it. The motorbike, the sound of the motorbike. Yeah, there's always something. But it's the delivery guy who actually comes into the house, right? He comes up to the door and he wants you to sign for the package and we have no idea when he comes because he comes a different time every time he comes. He's the one that I think causes anxiety, right? So for Luna, that wouldn't be the case, although she can see the whole driveway and the whole stairs up. She can sleep. She sees someone barking up and she does it. But I think it's dependent on the dog, right? Yeah. But if you – yeah, it's so hard. I wish I had an answer, but um, – So your, your problem then with her is that she hasn't found a way to make sure the fire alarm doesn't go off. So she can see the cues going, you open the window, like this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And you've got to find a way of breaking that stuff in between. And, and, and so you have to then show her that it doesn't necessarily lead to that. It, in fact, more reliably leads to something else. What does she do when the fire alarm goes off? She hides in a bathtub. Mm. But it hasn't happened since a year and it hasn't gone off and just a yeah, week ago. But it was ago, significant enough to create drama. Yes, but a week ago it, she did it again without the fire alarm going off. So I don't know what made that happen, what mm. reactivated that, because it was manageable before, like she wasn't in a state of anxiety. It was either a new trigger, like a new event, or something else that announced so reliably that the fire alarm was going to go off. Or maybe it was a fire alarm off. in somebody else's house. Yeah, exactly. That she's heard. Yeah, it could be so many things. It could um, be. You're right. There's It could have, would have, should have. Yeah. Without knowing it's, so, it's, it's, it's so complicated. Um, Do you know what You know what I noticed? I know you have to go. It's we're, we're over time. But- what I've noticed and I'm loving about doing these podcasts is it's gone from, we do educational ones and we <laughs> say, hey, this is some dog training facts. Yeah. But what I'm really enjoying is playing shit out. Yeah, like this having is like plasticine, isn't it? Like we're molding things. Yeah, yeah. Because like there's, there's- Trying to create something I, out of, out of this. Freestyling it. Glenn's been yeah. doing this for, how long have you been doing this? 27, 30 years, something like that. 28 years. All right, I've been doing it since breakfast. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like- I think I know a fucking lot about dogs. I'm teaching to a lot of people around the world now about dog training, right? But there's still so much that I have to understand. We're never the authority on anything. No, there's so much. And I love to try and play this out and understand yeah. it. And I, you know, I don't get very attached to my beliefs on anything. So I, I'm happy to be proven wrong or, or, sh- or understand something better. It's sorry, no, no, sorry, I need to backtrack on what I just said. We can be the authority on some things, but we're never the authority on all things. And no, we just don't, right. we, we 
don't live long enough to know everything and we don't really need to. And that's why we reference and that's why we call each other in yeah. and um, and network with each other because your specialty field and your specialty field and my specialty field complement each other. It's funny because you're telling me, I'm asking you really questions I'm really genuinely interested in and it boggles my brain about PTSD and all that kind of thing. And then you tell me an issue with your dog and I'm like, oh, it's this. Just... <laughs> Just go ahead and do this. I, I, I see that. But that is so nice. You know, I think that is the That's beauty. What we do. If you yeah. have, if you have a good awesome. community, then you can do these things, right? Oh Pip. my God! You just tied the whole thing together. Thank you. It just happened. We went back to community. <laughs> yeah, but Glenn, that's quick, Pip. mention Johan Harari again. <laughs> Johan Harari lost connections. We would love to talk to you. Yes. Ah. Uh, yeah. He can. It's funny that uh, there's a couple of people who are really. Adverse about the Jordan Peterson book, the Twelve Rules of Life. It's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. And yes, and it it is a little bit Bible preachy, but he's not preaching about the Bible. He's dissecting comments that were made in the biblical period. Yeah, because he looks at them as you know some of the people that made them were quite wise in the statements they made. He's not saying you have to believe in God or you know the Almighty God is going to come and smite you. He's he's not trying to preach to anybody. He's just saying. Here is what was said. Here are my thoughts around it. All biblical texts are full of ancient wisdom they when are. you understand the context in which they were written. Yeah. There were wise people so, on this earth before us, ladies and yeah. gents. So That's, it sounds absolutely stupid now if you understand the context in which they were written can actually be very profound. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. And that's what he's trying to do is say, well, it's people have thought about it as this where maybe this is another consideration. Anyway, Bertie, you're talking about doing some seminars. I'd love to know when, where, and how can people jump on them? Yeah, well, this depends when I can get a workshop room. So we have to talk. Like basically it's well, I've got a big seminar facility. Yeah, here, then you know. we basically get to lock it in. Yeah. And you're happy for other people to get in contact with you. Yes. So just to let you guys know, I don't do Skype consults. Anymore. Not anymore. Because it's just too complex. But I do. Get in touch with me. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm going to book one in because- I don't for aggression. I don't. Like if people want to do aggression issues with their dog with me, I don't. I can talk to you about other related issues with Skype, but I do not do them for aggression. Yeah. If you've oh, got an aggression enough. related issue, you need to come and see me. I need to see the dog and I need to see you. That's exactly why I stopped Skype because I'm yeah. like, it went from how do you anchor yourself- yeah, to, I do, I to just, big, and I had to call many times. I had to put people in hospital on the mm, Skype consult, which mm. is really not great. So um, I'm happy to watch video, but not not do the consult. consult. I need to see the dog. It needs yeah. to be I'm similar. Yeah, it's um, either in the home or here. Yeah, yeah. No, it it will happen next year, and I'm really excited. It's very different to what I used to do mm. um, because it's more practical, and you know the the model of it, the packed model, has been developed, and that's the structure of it. And there's lots of like I'm actually I'm I'm gonna make this public so I'm gonna follow up. I'm thinking about reducing my clean psych hours just so I can put more effort into my dog stuff. That's cool because it would be very fun. How's your health for traveling? So more of our well, almost more of our listeners are now in America than Australia. Yeah, it. it I have to talk to the person. It depends. Like um, I know I really want to go to the IC, ISCP conference next year. Because you were supposed to lecture there last year, weren't you? You're no, I wasn't. Well, I was entering a competition and I was hoping to win that. Oh, I the white paper? Get, yeah, the white paper. Yeah. So I'm hoping to do this this year again. But if anybody, if someone's got a facility, you said I need a facility. If someone's in the United States or anywhere around the world and they say, man, I really want to make Birdie watch me drop the anchor. <laughs> no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
anchoring yourself. What does your anchor look like, Bertie? I mean, I really want to do this. Is it one of those like four-pronged ones or just like an old sailor's one? That Well, too far. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. So, um, people... Anyway, people can get just in touch talk with you. To, talk to me because, but um, they can't do sessions over the over the Skype. No, I don't do Skype. But um, yeah, just talk to me because you know probably it's next year's already quite full because I'm also going to travel for psychology. I'm going to Bali. Cool. Um, so yeah, You're doing just talk a to me. retreat over in Bali, are you? Not doing a retreat. Um, the world experts in schema therapy are coming, and one of my super. What's, que- what's schema therapy? Quickly tell us what that is. Schema therapy is that looks at what unhelpful coping modes you have in life and what life traps you have. And it's one of the most complex models. Like Mm. I've been training it for three and a half, four years, really regularly. Mm -hmm. And it's really complex, but it's really accurate when you get the formulation right. I'm addicted to it. And I have a lot of supervision and training on it, like easily 40, 50 hours this year where I've just been supervised and talked about it. Wow. So I love it. And the world experts come here and my supervisor, hi, Rob. Um, is one of Australia's best trainers and he invited me to come along. That's one of my, I guess, one of my little minor criticisms of the industry is that I'm not a fan of psychology in a can in any way, shape or form. I'm also critical that anybody who is messing around with other people's minds that you really need to, not messing around, but helping to reconstruct people's minds and thoughts, uh, I really think you need peer reviews on a regular basis because I would not trust anybody to speak to and to be able to uh, resolve issues without knowing that that person is, first of all, neutral to my situation and is giving me sound information. It is. And it's so important that you have supervision. Like, you know, for example, before we even allowed to, to get our title, we have easily eight to a thousand, 800 to 1,000 hours supervised where someone watches you. Mm. For me, so- that's important. To me, that's also important. And Mm -hmm. this is why I like the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, it's Mm -hmm. so true because actually the more knowledge you have, the more you know how things can go wrong. Yeah. And like what you said when you first left your clinic and look, I was the same when I first started training. I thought, geez, I know so much. Now I realize that there's still so much to go, but I'm excited about that. You know, I'm really enthusiastic about the fact that there's there's a lot that I don't know. So much learning. So much learning. So much curiosity for resilience. Yeah. And, and I think it's also so cool because once you're in your community. There it is again. Then you can really bounce off each other, you know, mm, like and good mm. things can be created and things are moving. And I think that's why I love it. Like I love my schema therapy community. I love my dog nerding community. I love you guys because it's it's so enriching. Oh, and we love you too, Bertie. I actually do love you, and I know that you love us because you are. Because look at us. Yeah, <laughs> we're just such a Pat. great little anchor dropping team. Yeah, I was just gonna thank you. No, I think it's so special, and I really enjoy coming here. And mm. also, um, people have been emailing me a lot about questions. I'm sorry if I haven't answered all those questions because they didn't fit in today. But hopefully, one day I get to them again. Um, hey, I want to thank you very much for coming on because. I was just sort of realizing then as you're talking as a real life professional with real life qualifications and peers that will listen to this and to just uh, agree to go on air and have me throw stupid questions at you. I understand there's a risk involved in that and a professionalism that you have to uphold. It's easy for me because I'm just a dickhead with no qualifications. And a microphone. And that doesn't give a fuck about what anyone thinks. So it's easy for me to just throw out ideas, but I really appreciate that you have a like, 
there's rules and regulations by yes. which you have to operate. And they're really strict. And I, no matter what I do in life, I will always be held accountable to them. Yeah. And that's why, for example, our marketing as psychologists or clinical psychologists is so restrictive. And Narelle would know about this too. Mm. And, and you know, we, we are con- no matter what I will do in my life, I will be always judged on my ethics as a clinic, like, which mm. is probably one of the highest in the country. Yeah. So, so so thank you very much. I appreciate yeah, it. And yeah, exposing yourself to the risk of me just saying stupid things. It's not only your bravery workshop, but it's bravery upon yourself that you've taken the leap. And uh, and and to be honest, none of us have in this room, Pat and I, which I'm talking about, Pat and I, have any ambitions about you doing or saying anything unethical in any way, shape, or form. We're not trying to oh, bait you. you and you I know don't. you wouldn't. I know you wouldn't don't. anyway. That's not the type of person you are. I know how passionate and how serious you are about your profession and I know how much it means to you to have definitely an effect on the people that come and speak with you. you know, yeah, I, and, I'm, and this is it. another reason why I didn't do Skype is because I know I get better outcomes face-to-face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm so outcome-driven. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so obsessed with outcomes. Yep. Um, and I laugh so much when I listen to Pat and his training schedule. I'm like, yeah, that's me as a psych. That's like I – people are like, oh, how do you cope with all these stories? I'm like, man, to me, I have my – Many, many therapy forms and formulations in my head. And I'm like, what moves gives me the biggest bang? Like, what mm-hmm. do you need right now? For me, it's like a chess game. I'm like, come on, challenge me on this. Like, see who can do it. <laughs> so to me, it's, it's it's a real strategic, logical game. And, and it's every time I have a session, I'm like, okay, what's the next move? So it's very – calculated might be the wrong word, but it's it's not – it's, um, it's, it's using what works. Yeah. And it, that's also why psychologists don't do therapy on friends because it's too hard. It's too yep. draining. Well, you just did it live. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. That's not therapy. That's advice. Yeah, you're talking about Pat's mm. anchor. <laughs> All right, you let's did. Finish I don't talk about Pat's anchor. I would never do that. That's enough. I'm putting an end to this. Bertie, thank you. Thank um, you for having me. That's it. You're always welcome. Thank you. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, jump onto whatever subscription service you download us from. Like, rate, share, subscribe, tell a friend. All those things help us get the word out. If you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is to jump onto Patreon. It's our birthday. Give us a birthday present. Yeah, that's right. We gave you one. So you'd see the Patreon people. We put out a little video. It was a two and a half minute video of me training, but I just thought I'd put out something, Mm. something to demonstrate something we talk about. Anyway, if you want to uh, support us, jump onto Patreon. Three bucks a month will get you access to an extra episode a month and anything else that we just decide to put out into patreon if you want to get in contact with us do that via facebook we are the canine paradigm on facebook uh, if you want to book a session with me get in touch with me if you want to book a session with glenn get in touch with him if you want to book a session with birdie get in touch with birdie but you better not know her and you better be better able, not do it on skype better not be able to do bitch. it on skype yeah i'll just come to my workshops where it's different <laughs> yes different exactly. wait for <laughs> wait for birdie to put out information about the this, the workshop. And if you enjoy nautical terms like we do, like talking about poop deck, semen, dropping your anchor, go right ahead. We're very comfortable with uh, with uh, naval terms in this office. Pat <laughs> 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 can't recover. <laughs> I've never seen Pat's um, last four words. I'm right just going to start the music now. <laughs> 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 <laughs>